This is Total Retail Tech Insights. The content retail executives need to optimize their use of technology throughout their organizations. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Total Retail Tech Insights. I'm Joe Keenan, Editor-in-Chief of Total Retail. I'm joined on today's show by Dave Rossler, who is the Director of Payments, as well as Mike Haberman, the Director of Fraud Services, both of Radial. We're going to be speaking to Dave and Mike a little bit about the payments and fraud ecosystem um, and all the services that are offered at Radial and how they are um, helping retailers in that area. So thank you, Dave, and thank you, Mike, for joining me. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. So to get us started, I, I'm going to ask um, you, Mike, I'll start with you, in, in terms of the checkout experience and, and what retailers and merchants can do to optimize that for consumers. Yeah, great. Um, so as many of you know, digital wallets have taken off uh, as a payment method. Uh, merchants love digital wallets because they offer an easy and frictionless customer experience and boost their conversion rates. Many digital wallets support strong customer authentication, such as a two-factor authentication process. As adoption increases and new wallet types and enhancements take shape, fraudsters will look to expose any holes within the authentication process. It's important to note that even when authentication methods are used, bad actors can add stolen credit cards to multiple wallets on multiple devices. As a merchant on the front lines fighting fraud on a daily basis, it's important to note that digital wallets do not provide any sort of underlying credit card information, such as a bin number or identification number, but rather a wallet token. Underlying payment methods can be used uh, and moved to new wallets. Secondly, banks vary in how they authenticate when a new card is added to a wallet. A good rule of thumb is to not just look at a digital wallet transaction and assume that it's automatically a good order. It's important to take a layered approach to fraud prevention. Conduct thorough data analysis across the board by looking at fraud and chargeback trends. Effective digital wallet fraud prevention starts by taking a balanced, multifaceted approach through machine learning and a specific rule strategy related to digital wallet transactions. Thanks for that, Mike. That was uh, you provided a kind of a good context here for the audience in terms of um, how fraud relates to the checkout experience. Dave, did you want to have anything to add here for, in terms of a payments perspective? Yeah, from an optimization uh, optimization perspective, I, you know, I, I first like to think about a traditional checkout experience um, that you know many of us are accustomed to, and you know, you, you you click on your cart, you start to enter your contact information. Then we go to a next page and we talk about shipping information, another page with payment information, and then we do a, a review order page. Um, and so the, the point of optimization, right, is, is a speed to checkout. Um, you know, Mike touched on the wallets. You know, you have your Google Pay, Apple Pay, PayPal, Amazon Pay. And, and I think if, if you were to, you know, ask a room of 100 people, if, uh, if they have one of those wallets, you know, once you get through all four, you should have like a hundred hands in the air. Um, I, I would say to add to the wallets, uh, you, you can also use buy now, pay laters as well. Um, and again, optimization being speed to checkout. We wanna remove those multiple pages which can, can lead to cart abandonment or customer frustration. Um, but, you know, in, in this uh, same world, there, there's, can be a, like a, a lack of familiarity, if you will. Um, 
And so what, what I would advise you know, the merchants to do here is to, to work with your payments processor on awareness uh, and, and co-marketing opportunities. Um, the, the wallets, the buy now, pay laters are very much ready to help drive adoption uh, of their wallet or, or buy now, pay later service. Uh, and so a lot of times they, they'd be willing to help you uh, go to your consumers to increase familiarity and adoption. Um, so I, I would add that, you know, to optimize your checkout experience, you're not alone. Um, you should be looking at these, these payment types and working with the actual owners of those wallets and, and the respective buy now, pay laters to drive familiarity uh, and, and a better customer experience. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and I'm going to actually follow up on kind of that buy now, pay later piece. Um, we've seen really um, rising adoption among consumers of that payment option, and therefore more and more retailers are offering it to their customers. Tell us a little bit about um, the appeal to customers um, with that payment option. And then secondarily, uh, talk a little bit about from the merchant side in terms of implementing a solution or an option um, such as buy now, pay later. Sure, sure. So uh, I think it's uh, this is a funny question. Just you know, as you get older, you you have these generations that are coming, um, you know, behind you, adopting new payment types and new ways to go about things, and, and we need to be cognizant of that. And so uh, I tend to think about millennials when I think about the buy now, pay later. But f- for them, I feel that millennials want they want to own their financial affairs. Uh, and have more choices. Uh, they want to have, and, and with that, they want to have choices over their payment plan. So a lot of these buy now, pay laters, uh, you know, they have multiple ways to pay for your purchase. Um, you know, you can do a pay in four, you can do a pay in 12. I mean, some of the, some of the buy now, pay laters can go as far as, as 36 months. Um, they have try before you buy. Uh, I think, you know, that, that helps address any customer concern about whether they would like an item or not. Um, but it, you know, if, if, we, if we look at even the banking apps and, and how they've changed over time, it, it's, it's, a, it's like having an automated lifestyle coach, how, how to help you save, showing your spend trends, you know, giving you alerts and notifications when, when you're going up to meet a certain threshold and in, in, in what you want to spend per month or per week. Um, so again, in, in this similar way, choice and control over the financing of their purchases um, is, is very much important uh, to the to these consumers that enjoy the BNPLs. Um, and I, I would just add that I would choose to implement, you know, on a couple things. I think consumer adoption is a big one, right? So if you have forty million people using one particular buy now pay later versus one million using another, you're going to have obviously a forty times greater exposure. Um, mm-hmm. using yeah. the one that has higher customer adoption. Um, and then I think too, with that, if, if, if it all looks equal from um, the adoption side of the house, well, how many different ways can you finance through the BNPL? Uh, I think offering a lot of choice there allows that consumer to have the choice they want, uh, which sometimes drives the consumer adoption, um, you know, which you'll need to pay to pay attention to, um, just not the merchant adoption side of it. For the future, um, in terms of payments and fraud, um, I'm interested in your perspectives from each of you around the future of 3DS and why it's important for merchants to be following and, and considering that. Yeah, Joe, this is Mike. Um, so just a brief history 
you know, kind of around um, 3D Secure. So obviously the, uh, the original 3D Secure, kind of known as 1.0, um, it's also, like you've mentioned, referred to as 3DS, uh, was pioneered by Visa around 2007 uh, with the ultimate goal to, was to protect e-commerce transactions by providing an additional layer of um, identity verification before payment authorization. Uh, so 3DS enables the exchange of data between the merchant, the card issuer, and the consumer, obviously with the end goal to validate that the transaction um, that's occurring is being conducted by the, the, you know, the rightful owner of the credit card account. Um, so around September of 2019, the EU uh, raised the revised directive on payment services, which is also known as uh, PSD2. Um, so within that PSD2 directive, the, the requirement was uh, for a strong customer authentication. So this requirement ensured that the uh, electronic payment being performed uh, with a multi-factor authentication was to uh, have an end goal of you know, increasing overall security. So uh, to strike the best balance between the consumer experience and security, the latest version of uh, 3DS, which is known as 3DS 2.0, uh, provides an efficient experience um, to the consumer. That's similar to many other things that you encounter in your, your daily life related to you know, any sort of authentication. So for instance, if you go online to access your banking information, um, your bank may require uh, that you enter a one-time passcode and usually receive via text or email. Uh, you know, if you're attempting to pay your utility bill and don't remember your password, you may receive a text containing a code, which you in turn enter into the billing website. So this is connected obviously with your phone number or your email to you as an account uh, owner, thereby validating that you are who you say you are. Um, so since we've already kind of conditioned uh, people in our daily lives uh, for this experience, the 3DS 2.0 uh, will be adopted on a, a much larger scale, um, in my opinion. So from a fraud perspective, merchants who integrate uh, 3DS strategy will get a liability shift, meaning that if a 3DS is integrated into the flow uh, of a merchant's checkout page and authentication was successful, uh, a merchant won't be liable for any sort of fraud reason code uh, chargeback loss. So this has you know, positive financial impacts, increases your conversion and provides efficiencies related to fraud review. Uh, the merchant may also benefit from a customer loyalty perspective, you know, because customers who feel safe shopping on an e-commerce site are typically pretty loyal to that brand. Since 3DS interfaces um, support desktop and mobile app and browsers, customers can ensure that they'll have a unified experience kind of um, depending on what device they choose to use when transacting online. Um, and I think lastly, local regulations, whether those be in the U.S. or in other areas of the world, uh, such as the EU may dictate whether a merchant needs to integrate um, this 3DS strong up customer authentication protocol. An important distinction and point you, you've made, uh, Mike, in terms of, and I'm actually interested to get you know, uh, uh, your perspective on a follow-up, and maybe Dave has something to add as well, in terms of getting that right balance, which is so critical for, you know, from the merchant perspective, they want a fraud, a stringent fraud protection system and review process, but also they don't want to make it um, too uh, cumbersome or, or challenging for the consumer to check out. So striking that right balance is so critical. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I think you, I think you bring up a good point. Like I said, it's, it's really about kind of conditioning that consumer um, and most consumers, again, are, are very loyal to a brand. And, and like you mentioned, it's a great point that uh, they want to feel like they're protected online. And, and that, you know, if you think about things in your own daily life and 
things that work out well for you and things that don't work out well for you, um, it, you know, obviously is very important. Um, I'll also say that, you know, a merchant who pays, you know, close attention to what their, the voice of their customers are, uh, can usually drive this, these types of uh, protocols as well. So it's important to keep a, keep an ear to the ground and, and find out yep. what your customers really want. I think the future uh, of 3DS, when, when we start to wonder where it's going to head, I, I think we need to think back to when uh, North America adopted EMV uh, and what happened there. We saw a massive reduction in card present fraud and then a shift to the increase in, in e-commerce fraud. That's where the fraudsters moved. Um, and, I, and I think North America's natural move through its regulators will be to adopt 3DS, 2.x, um, and incorporating that now will set merchants up to be ready for when the directive comes. Uh, I think, you know, it's, it's not even been, what, 10 years since everybody needed to move towards EMV when the liability shift uh, was going to take place. Uh, and there was a massive scramble to get the project work done. There was people that didn't make it. And, and I think, you know, I would say that some even fell victim um, to not being compliant uh, and ready. Uh, so historically, you know, 1.0 was clunky. Um, you know, there, there was additional security, but it really attributed to a bad experience, including, you know, the card abandonment, declined cards, uh, you know, people, you know, didn't understand the redirects and having to authenticate, uh, you know, and so issuers, even in, in, in the advent of that, they, they would move to risk-based authentications where, you know, you're, you're not challenging the customer because they're looking at data and behavior uh, and so that they could authenticate without uh, making the, the customer uh, take a break to go authenticate, you know, on a different website with, with 2.x, uh, and I say .x because there's you know different versions between the schemes. Um, there there is the additional layer of security there, but with that comes less false declines, a reduced card abandonment, and it, it's a better experience for for cardholders and for merchants. So I think as as 3ds 2.x continues to evolve, we're looking at a, a much brighter future for 3ds uh, as a tool to combat fraud. And while also ensuring a great customer purchasing experience. Um, to add to that, I would say too, that it's not as um, black and white and maybe as people would think it's not, are, are you gonna authenticate all the time or are you not gonna authenticate? You, you can use rules uh, to construct the, the algorithm on when to authenticate. Um, you don't always have to do it. Uh, typically, you know, take a look at how issuers address it as well. They're not always authenticating and challenging the customer. Uh, a lot of times when presented with uh, the, the 3DS authentication, they will do a risk-based authentication, which is passive. Um, so liability shift occurs without challenging the customer. So uh, in, in, in this sense, you know, the merchant still gets the protection uh, and the, you know, the, the consumer oftentimes doesn't even realize it. And yeah. issuers do this based purely on behavior. They, they know their, their customer, they know the person using the card uh, and their shopping habits. So uh, we're, we're all getting smarter with the use of data collection. So yeah, and that, uh, would, kind of running in the background to your point, the consumer doesn't know that it's occurring. And so obviously it's no, it's not adding any friction to the checkout experience. Not unless they're going to get challenged. And that, and that <laughs> typically is with a, 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 a transaction that is an outlier. You know, if, if you're not typically spending more than 50 bucks at a time with your checkout, 
experiences. And next thing you know, you're trying to charge $400. That might be a time when your issuer jumps in um, if an authentication uh, request is made to challenge it because they're yeah. there to protect you. I mean, that's what this is intended to do. So I'm going to come right back to you, Dave, with another question in terms of the unified checkout experience. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what in, in your from your perspective at, at Radio, what that means and why it's important for merchants to be considering and, and working towards a, a unified checkout experience. Sure. You e-commerce, the ubiquitous commerce, you know, has kind of become the buzzword lately. And, you know, I, I think with that, we need to think about the ways our consumers connect to the merchants. You know, they, they want a anytime, anyplace connection, you know, the social media, uh, through their phones, through their, their laptops, tablets, in the store, uh, et cetera. And, and even being in the store doesn't necessarily mean that you could or that you will solve for all your consumers' wants when they're shopping. Um, you think about endless aisle, you have your eye mirrors now. So if, if something's not in stock at the store, that doesn't mean you can't sell it. Um, having the ability to get the customers the products or you know the services that they want right away um, again is becoming more and more uh, important so uh, having that 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 unified experience where you know they, they can have the same shopping experience across devices across uh, you know the, the stores versus shopping online um, it, it, it brings a sense of familiarity uh, and it, it satisfies, I think, that their needs. Um, so being everywhere for them is, is again, as is, is payments evolves, as the shopping experiences evolve, it's going to become more and more important for our consumers. Yeah, I would imagine as we see even more on the, you know, consumers, even within the same purchase journey, a lot of times are, are going back and forth between channels, even online to offline and, and vice versa. That unified experience, especially when it comes to payments, is is so important as well. Yep. Uh, even with, you know, your boat, but your buy online, pick up and store. Yep. I mean, a lot of times they're coming there with just the intent possibly to pick up, but then they're running in because they've seen something on the way to the store. They they walk in to, to grab their goods if it's not being dropped to their car and they decide that they want to add to that. Um, you know, again, making that easy and seamless uh, just helps create, incre uh, or excuse me, helps increase, you know, your carts uh, and, and, you know, and sell more of the goods and services that you're trying to do. So we've already provided some great information for our audience uh, to consider. Um, Going to follow up with a, with a question in terms of, um, in your view, and I'll, I'll ask this first of you, Dave, and then Mike, if you have anything to add, by, by all means, jump in. Um, can you talk a little bit about pros and cons and specifically around utilizing multiple providers um, for payments uh, as well as fraud. Sure, sure. So uh, I think historically, a lot of people looked at the multiple providers as, you know, managing maybe multiple messes from time to time. Um, <laughs> again, as, as payments you know, evolves and, and the landscape evolves, I, I think the, the processors start to see how important it is to be available. Um, and they know that as you know, a payment facilitator like radio or your merchants, your large enterprise merchants, they're becoming more savvy as well. They're, they're, they're using multiple providers for benchmarking, better rates, um, you know, which comes with data review. Um, you know, historically speaking, I, I think 
people would use multiple processors in the event of outages, um, you know, because even sometimes with redundancy, uh, you know, in the data centers for your processors, there's still downtime, there's still outages. I, I think your, your newer processors are getting uh, very, very good at, at protecting themselves against outages. Um, so I, I think, you know, the, the, just for loading and backup purposes, um, you know, that redundancy requirement uh, isn't as, as important as it used to be. Um, you know, but so all in all, there's, I, I see mostly pros as long as you can manage the multiple processors. Um, from a, from a, a con side, it, it is more to manage. Um, but again, mm -hmm. as long as the, the merchant uh, has the bandwidth in order to do that, uh, I, I think that there's a lot of good things that can come from it. And from a consumer perspective, I imagine, you know, multiple providers, particularly, particularly around payment options, more options, better flexibility for the consumer, traditionally has led to higher conversion. Um, if you're giving them more ways to pay, is, is, is that something that also needs to kind of be thought about as you're, as you're considering that? Yeah. So I, I think, so from a, a, a merchant perspective, when utilizing one processor versus another, um, it, if you're trying to replicate, obviously you need to make sure that uh, they're both offering the same services. Uh, I, I think there are processors out there that do a much better job in certain aspects of processing uh, than others. I mean, for example, you know, subscription payments could be one where some of these processors have really great tools uh, and insights into that subscription world, um, you know, versus others. But you you can certainly uh, go to different processors to leverage one particular aspect of their product offering versus another. Um, but again, trying to create that redundancy anymore, it's it's really tough to replicate all the products and services from one processor to the next. So I think it's it goes back to some optimization as well. And I'm going to get to a fraud question here. Um, Mike, I'm going to address this one to you in terms of um, looking at the benefits, we've talked a little bit about manual review processes versus kind of a pass and or fail strategy. Can you talk a little bit about the benefits of, of having such a, a process in place? Yeah, so um, many merchants, you know, today, uh, they've employed a, a pass fail strategy. Um, and it's really been adopted by so, so that merchants don't have to have a, a specialized team of manual review um, people. So uh, the many review you know, process is best described as a, you know, obviously a specialized fraud team that reviews orders that have some sort of outlier. So those orders could be considered suspicious. Um, some may be missing information. So a good example of like an outlier would be that a consumer may have an IP that doesn't match to their, obviously their general location. Um, they could be using a new device that you know, we've never seen before, or they could be traveling and therefore shipping to an address that they haven't used before. So what this manual review team would do is they look for a reason to approve the order by using data, looking at past order history or potentially you know, placing a call to that customer. So obviously an efficient product screening process coupled with a low review rate increases overall customer satisfaction. Um, and the reason why I say all this is because merchants need to be aware that if they choose to move to a pass or fail strategy, um, it generally results in good customers calling into the merchant and complaining that their order may have been canceled you know, by mistake. Yeah. Um, so oftentimes it's hard for a merchant to employ a team that fully understands the difference between an authentic caller and a bad actor. 
Uh, so with all the options that a consumer has related to brand and merchant, it's important that this mistake doesn't happen. Uh, it's virtually impossible uh, for this not to occur. Um, so really by employing a data science team that uses a large depth and breadth of data and using a combination of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and a rule strategy strikes the best balance between the automation and a very low uh, manual review percentage. Because uh, with AI and ML, as well as a rule strategy being super uh, efficient, um, there's always like those small outliers <clears throat> that can't determine whether or not an order is good or bad. So you need that human interaction. So really in the end, it, it, this really does increase overall customer satisfaction. And I would imagine, you know, um, in terms of customer retention too, false positives, while they'll still happen on occasion, um, to your point, that using that data and the technology AI and ML to kind of um, paired with kind of the human touch as well can help prevent some of those false positives and, and obviously um, retain more customers. That's correct. Great. Well, um, I wanted to give the opportunity to Dave and Mike, if you guys have anything to add in terms of uh, our audience wanting to know and learn more about the services and products that Radial has to offer, particularly as it relates to your areas of the business around payments and fraud, where would you direct them? Radial.com. There, there's plenty more there as well as uh, payments and, and fraud. Um, you know, we, we are a, a payment facilitator that specializes in e-commerce logistics fulfillment. Um, as well as payments and fraud. So um, we have the, the, the full suite for, for merchants, um, you know, particularly e-commerce ones, uh, you know, to help them grow their business. Yeah, our fraud side, uh, we have a great, we have a specialized team of uh, fraud professionals that have been in the fraud arena for many years. Um, we take great pride in, in helping our customers succeed from a fraud perspective. Uh, we have you know, some of the lowest chargeback rates in the industry, as well as extremely high conversion rates. Uh, and with all this being said, we also indemnify uh, any chargeback losses that a merchant may get. So um, we do uh, put our money where our mouth is. Yeah, well, that's, that's fantastic. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, some really great insights, particularly uh, related to the payments and fraud landscape within the um, retail space right now and I want to take the opportunity to thank Dave Rossler, the Director of Payments at Radial, as well as Mike Haberman, who is the Director of Fraud Services at Radial for joining us on today's episode of Total Retail Tech Insights. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, Mike. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for listening. For more information on this podcast, please check out our podcast channel page at mytotalretail.com slash podcasts for show notes. Total Retail Tech Insights is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Make sure to subscribe on our podcast channel page as well. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a few moments to rate and review this podcast. Thanks, and until next time, this has been Total Retail Tech Insights.